0: I'm in the word tonight, of course, is Bible question and answer, and there's a very good chance we will be able to do something we have not done literally for years. Uh, When we first started Bible question and answer years ago, uh, it was the case that I would get four or five questions, and then we would spend the balance of the evening till 7 o'clock taking questions from the floor. And we haven't done that for years now simply because every month Uh, I am handed almost more questions than I can get in. I have to race and abbreviate, et cetera. Well, this was uh, a throwback today because we just got a few questions. And so uh, if you have one and we have time, we will take questions from the floor just to finish out the evening. So you can be thinking of your question. You just need to say it out loudly enough for me to hear. I'll repeat it since it will be on the recording. And uh, we'll be able to work it that way. I think there's a very good chance, although I never know for sure, because I really don't plan how long I'm going to take for each question. I just sort of uh, say whatever is on my heart to say, whatever's on my mind to say about the question, and then move on to the next. And I often will, you know, coming to the end of the question, say something like, uh, you know, well, there's obviously a lot more that could be said about that. And usually what that means is I just ran out of material. Uh, and I really don't have any more to say, but I need to look like I have more to say, but we'll go on to the next question. So just need to understand how preachers work, what they mean by what they say. Um, so anyway, uh, in all seriousness, uh, you can be thinking if you have a question, uh, we probably will be able to have time for one or two or three from the floor, but we'll see how that goes as it unfolds. All right, question. First question, <clears throat> uh, a few youngsters came up to me this morning after the service, they're Uh, Minds were prompted by the message that uh, Pastor Brad Bigney gave about heaven, new earth, etc. And their question is this. Uh, I don't know which of the three youngsters wrote it, but um, uh, they said, uh, Will the new earth be just like ours, with bodies, just no evil, tears, pain, etc.? And uh, the answer to that question is, will the new earth be just like ours? No, it won't be just like ours because... As we saw this morning in Romans chapter 8, Paul makes it clear that as beautiful as this world is, uh, and as gorgeous as it is, as breathtaking as much of it is, uh, it's under a curse. This earth is under a curse. And so uh, the curse will be removed, and that is why uh, before you even get to the new heaven and new earth, we sort of get a glimpse or a foretaste of it in the millennial kingdom, because the Old Testament prophets, especially Isaiah, talk about, The desert will blossom like a rose, so there's going to be a lot of changes on planet Earth. Uh, But it will still be, it won't be just like ours, but it won't be so different in the sense that, as Pastor uh, Brad Bigney was saying this morning, that it's sort of somehow ethereal or mystical. It's going to be very tangible. Uh, Revelation 21 and 22, those two chapters which describe the new heaven and the new earth, talk about a river, and it talks about very tangible things. A tree growing on both sides of the river. And if you know much about botany, then you know that th- this is the case with many trees. That sometimes when you see a, a group of trees, it's easy to assume it's several trees. It actually may be one tree, which has many sprouts, if you will. And so uh, the tree of life is going to grow on both sides of the river. Uh, so it, I, I really appreciated Pastor Brad this morning emphasizing that the new heaven and the new earth will be very real, very tangible, very physical, not ethereal. But in answer to your question, it won't be just like ours. If you read Revelation 21 and 22, it's obvious that John's language there is by design intended to take us back to Genesis 1 and 2, the original creation. Because what you have in in Revelation uh, 21 and 22 is, to use a contemporary phrase, you you have uh, paradise lost in Genesis 3 and paradise regained in Genesis 21 and 22. In fact, in Matthew 19, Jesus uses an interesting phrase. He says this. In fact, let's just turn to that, uh, to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, And this is not even the new heaven and the new earth that's being referenced here in Matthew 19. This This is the millennial kingdom which precedes the new heaven and the new earth. Um, in verse 27 of Matthew 19, Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? And notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Like, Peter, how selfish could you be that you would ask such a question? No, it's a legitimate question. What do you have planned, Lord? What's in store for those who belong to you? And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the, my translation says, in the regeneration, um, that word in Greek actually is a combination of of two Greek words, uh, which literally would be translated in the again Genesis. In the again Genesis. And that is a way to describe the kingdom, because the kingdom will be uh, what the original creation was like. So in that sense, uh, if you want to say, well, will the new earth be just like ours? No, but probably the millennial earth will be just like what original creation was in Genesis 1 and 2. In the again Genesis, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So if you look at the dwelling place of the redeemed, you could almost look at it in two stages. The millennial kingdom will be again Genesis. That is, when the curse is reversed, we go back to what it was like in Genesis 1 and 2. And then you have in Genesis 21 and 22 uh, that I don't know how else to say it except intensified. It's obvious that as you read Genesis, uh, Revelation 21 and 22, John is really stretching, reaching, trying to, to find words or terminology to express what he's seeing. In fact, in the book of Revelation as a whole, and even in those chapters, you, you see the word like. It is like this. He's trying to, trying to give some comparisons. It's not exactly, but it's like this. and He's trying to find words, phrases, descriptions to describe what the new heaven and the new earth will be like. Now in addition to that, you, you, the youngsters here ask this question, will the new earth be just like ours with bodies? I'm glad you put that in there because Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection chapter, uh, labors extensively. There are 58 verses in 1 Corinthians 15, which is all about future resurrection. Uh, Paul labors to express the idea that We will not spend eternity floating around uh, in some mystical way, but with literal physical bodies. And Paul uses two terms to describe our new bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says they will be uh, incorruptible. That's one term he uses. Incorruptible means literally not subject to corruption. That is, we can't get sick, can't break bones, can't any of those things that are involved in corruption And then immortal, which means not subject to death. So our new bodies will be not subject to decay and not subject to death. Because theoretically, your body could be not subject to decay. That is, you couldn't get sick or anything, but you could die. You know, get stabbed or shot or something and your body just died. It would not decay, but I'm just talking in theory. But Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 15, neither will be a reality with our new bodies. Not subject to decay not subject to death. So all that to say this, we will spend eternity in a new heaven and a new earth with the new Jerusalem as the capital. And again, it's an a inaccurate conception in Christianity that, that in eternity we're just going to be in heaven. That's the way most people view it. We're just going to be in heaven. It's not technically accurate. We'll be in the new heaven The new earth, the new Jerusalem is the capital. All of that will be the eternal dwelling place of God's people. And we will dwell there with literal, physical bodies that are incorruptible, immortal, not subject to decay, not subject to death. And you're right with the rest of your question. uh, No evil, tears, pain, etc. In fact, I find it fascinating... In Revelation 21, that when John begins to try to describe the new heaven and the new earth, it is easier for him to describe it by what won't be there rather than by what will be there. He says there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears, no more, no more. It's easier for him to describe it that way than it is to come up with some description of what it will be like. Here's what it won't be like. No sadness, no sorrow, no loneliness, no tears, etc., All right, next question is Matthew 18. So just go back one chapter, Uh, Matthew chapter 18. You have this familiar story in Matthew 18 uh, that Jesus told. Coming off Peter's question in verse 21, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times but up to 70 times seven. And then he tells this familiar story. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That is an insurmountable amount of money. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded to be sold with his wife and children all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all, which was an utter impossibility. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is not an insignificant amount of money, by the way. Not insignificant. We don't want to triv- trivialize this, that Jesus is somehow saying, oh, you know, you have been forgiven an enormous amount by God, but someone, you know, hurts your feelings. You're not willing to forgive them. No, he's not talking about some, something insignificant or little. It is significant. But in comparison to the debt we owed God, it is very small. But he owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid his hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have, have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry. Here's the question verse. His master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And the question is this. Here in Matthew 18, 34, it says that the unforgiving servant was delivered to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. What did he owe? I thought his entire debt had been forgiven. It sounds like Jesus is saying God unforgives sin, but obviously that's not the idea. So what is the idea? A a valid question, a good question, and I would say two responses to that, or two answers, not two separate answers, but first of all, I don't think it is implying that, okay, now he decided to unforgive him. Now he's going to have to pay him. But what was due, what was due from this man was forgiveness to his fellow servant. So he, I think what he was saying here, he's going to deliver him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. What was due to him, to his master, was to grant the same kind of forgiveness to the fellow servant that had been granted to him. And I think that that is further brought out by the fact that it does not say he was delivered to the executioners. He was delivered not to the executioners, but the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. But even if you say, "Ah, I'm not so convinced that's exactly what it's saying, it is clear what the point is. And, I, and, and, and we, what we need to be careful about when it comes to the parables of Jesus or the stories of Jesus is not to, to I'll say it this way, not to get too hung up on details that are really beyond the point. Let me, let me illustrate what I'm talking about. All of you know the story of the prodigal son. In Luke's gospel. A man had two sons, you remember, and one said, give me all that is due to me. I want my inheritance early, which was basically saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. Give me it. And then he went out and squandered, it. Said, Well, you know, sometimes you hear a preacher get up and say, well, you know what the problem was in that? There's no mother mentioned in the story. That, that Those boys were out of, without a mother. If they just would have had a mother, then that one guy wouldn't have gone off the deep Well, that's not the point. I mean, the fact that no mother is mentioned in the story is completely irrelevant. Don't try to read in details that are beyond the point. The point is just illustrating God the Father as the father and two of his children and different responses, etc. So uh, when it comes to stories of Jesus and parables, don't, don't uh, push the details beyond what he intended them to be pushed. He's obviously making a point, and we all understand the point here. The point is what a contradiction that we would receive God's forgiveness of a debt that is insurmountable and unpayable, and then turn around and be unwilling to forgive someone, though the debt may be significant. That is, the hurt may be significant. What a contradiction that we would be unwilling to forgive someone. And just as it says here, the implication of what Jesus is teaching here is that the Father also delivers us to the torturers, that we will be chastised, tormented, until we come to the point where we're willing to forgive as we have been granted forgiveness. All right, next question says this. um, uh, What is the scriptural guidance for a follower of Christ to keep the Sabbath holy? I really am glad this question was asked because it is such a, one, it is such a significant issue, uh, and also because it is such a confusing issue, and therefore we do get, I do get in in Bible Q&A this question probably every Four or five months, or one similar to it, because because Christians are wrestling with this, and and it is it is confusing, and it is so important. So what I did is right before the service, I just printed out from my computer a little uh, article slash letter that I wrote a while back, uh, specifically because I get asked about this so often, and I find that I end up sending this out to people all the time, all over the place. And so I'm just going to read to you what I've written, and, and I saw the gentleman here tonight who asked the question, so I'll give you this uh, afterwards, and you can take it with you. But it's just a, a, a sort of maybe like a little pamphlet that I've put together on this topic because of its importance and how confusing. Here's what it says. One of the most confusing aspects of the Christian life for some believers is the subject of the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law. Of course, the Sabbath is one of those aspects of the law. Are we obligated to keep the 613 commandments of the Old Testament? How much of it are we obligated to obey? All of it? Some of it? Part of it? If we are obligated to obey part of it, Sabbath is the question specifically, then what part? Do we have the right to divide up the Old Testament law and say, well, we're under this part, but not under that part? The following information may help you in answering these questions. It is clear from the teaching of the New Testament that the law has been abrogated or set aside whatever term you prefer. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's a summary statement of what Jesus accomplished in his life and death. The law was given through Moses, but Jesus has brought in a new covenant or a new system. The night before his death, he announced to his disciples he was instituting a new covenant. It is this new covenant that we are under today, not the old one, i.e. the law. Although some of the law is reiterated in the new covenant. The Lord relayed this to Peter in Acts 10 when Peter saw a sheet descending from heaven with all kinds of animals in it that had been formerly unclean. They were unkosher. It is obvious that the Old Testament dietary laws have been set aside by this time or else the Lord was tempting Peter with sin by telling him to eat. The scripture is clear. God cannot tempt anyone to sin. Romans 6.14 clearly states that we are not under law but under grace. In Romans 7.4-6, Paul goes into detail to explain that we have been released from the law to be married to Christ. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We are not made righteous by the law, and we don't live righteously by the law. It is obvious from Romans 14, 5 and 6 that the Sabbath law is no longer in effect because Paul states in that passage that the issue is now a matter of Christian liberty. In 1 Corinthians 9.20, Paul shows that he knew that he wasn't under the law, although he abided by the law for the sake of ministry to the Jews. Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11, is that the law was glorious for its time and purpose, but it was only temporary and has passed away. Jesus fulfilled it and instituted the new covenant. In Galatians 2.19, Paul said he died to the law, and in 3.3, he condemns those who try to use the law for sanctification as well as justification. In 325 of Galatians, he says, it as forcefully as it can be said, we are no longer under a tutor, i.e. the law. In 421 through 31, he teaches how foolish it is (coughs) to want to go back under the law. Galatians 5.18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Ephesians 2.15 says, our Lord abolished the law of commandments, and Colossians 2, 13 through 17 makes it clear that we are not under the law, including the Sabbath commands. Hebrews 7:12 and surrounding verses is another passage that teaches that the law has been set aside. In, in, in Hebrews 10:1, we see that the sacrificial system was part of the law, so when the perfect sacrifice came, the law and sacrifices were finished. Now here's an important point: those words were written to Jewish Christians. So they aren't under the law. And the reason I stress this is sometimes I have Jewish Christians say, well, no, of course, you Gentiles aren't under the law. You never were really under the law. The law was given to us as Jewish people. So as Jewish people, if we come to faith in Christ, we're still under the law. No, those words were written to Jewish Christians, stating you're not under the law. James 2.10 and Galatians 3.10 indicate the law is a unit. We sometimes refer to the ceremonial law, civil law, moral law. However, all of it was moral because God commanded it. When God commands something, then that is a moral issue. Therefore, we have no right to arbitrarily divide up the law and to say that we have set that we have to keep certain aspects but it's okay to ignore others. All of it is in force or it is not. If all is in force, then I'm going to talk about the implications here in a moment. Therefore, here's the conclusion on this This pamphlet. Therefore, it is safe to say that the law was glorious for its time and purpose, but was only temporary and has passed away by God's design. However, a person may choose to observe certain aspects of the law, such as the feasts and the festivals, but we're not under the law, period. We are not obligated to obey the Old Testament law for justification or sanctification or for any other reason. Today, we are under the new covenant. Certainly, here's an important point, certainly. Some of the Old Covenant has been repeated in the New Covenant, such as nine of the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath command is not reiterated, but it is the New Testament or the New Covenant that we are under. We have become dead to the law. This is a direct quote from Romans 7-4. We have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Now the reason that verse is so important is this. Some Christians panic panic when they hear you say, you know, when they hear this kind of teaching, they say, what are you doing? You're going you're gonna to give people the impression you can live any way you want to. If you tell them we're not under the law, we're not obligated to obey the law, you're going to take away motivation for holy living. Let me ask you a question. Which is a greater incentive to holy living? To hear that you are under the law or to hear that you are married to Christ? I hope you understand that to hear that you're married to Christ is a far greater incentive to holiness than, say, you're under the law. And Romans 7, 4 says, We have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that we may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, to bear fruit to God. And so, coming off of that teaching, I wrote a little letter. It just says this, Dear friend in Christ, it is becoming an increasingly popular belief among Christians who should be living under the new covenant that we are obligated to obey the precepts of the Old Covenant, Mosaic Law, or Torah. This teaching is propagated by some messianic congregations and other groups who call themselves Torah observers. Though this belief may be prompted by good motives, a desire to be pleasing to God, it is inaccurate, misguided, and even harmful to the cause of Christ. Since the law is a unit, Galatians 3.10, James 2.10, it is wrong for those who try to impose some of the Mosaic Law on Christians today to pick and choose which aspects of it they think are still binding. The following facetious questions illustrate the error of trying to pull the Mosaic law out of its historical, cultural, theological context and imposing it upon people who are to be living under the new covenant. Here are the facetious questions. Now listen, I'm not making fun of the law of God, but these are facetious questions to make the point, all right? Here they are, ten of them. Leviticus 25.44 states that I may possess slaves, both male and female, provided they are purchased from neighboring nations. A friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans but not Canadians. Can you clarify? Why can't I own Canadians? Question two. I would like to sell my daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? Third question. I know that I am allowed no contact with a woman while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. Uh, Leviticus 15, 19 to 24. The problem is, how do you know? It's a valid question. Number four. When I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord. Leviticus 1.9. The problem is my neighbors. They claim the odor is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? Number five. I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly states he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself or should I ask the police to do it? <laughs> Number six, a friend of mine feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination, according to Leviticus 11.10, it is a lesser abomination than homosexuality. I don't agree. Can you settle this? Are there degrees of abomination? Number seven, Leviticus 21.20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20.20 or is there some wiggle room here? Number eight, most of my male friends get their hair trimmed, including the hair around their temples, even though this is expressly forbidden by Leviticus 19.27. How should they die? Next question, I know from Leviticus 116 6 through 8, that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean. But may I still play football if I wear gloves? And then finally, number 10, my uncle has a farm. He violates Leviticus 19, 19 by planting two different crops in the same field, as does his wife by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread, cotton and polyester blend. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone them in accordance with Leviticus 24? Couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair like we do with people who sleep with their in-laws, as Leviticus 20 verse 14 states? Obviously, those are facetious questions, but they illustrate the point. You cannot, you can't go in and pick and choose from the law of God well, we're under this one, but not under that one. This one applies, that one doesn't. It's a unit. We're either under it or we're not under it. And the New Testament says we're not under it, unless something is reiterated in the New Testament. As I said, nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated in the New Testament. The Sabbath command is never reiterated, and in fact, it is repealed, specifically repealed in Colossians and in Galatians. So, in answer to your question, what is the scriptural guideline for a follower of Christ to keep the Sabbath holy? We are not under the Sabbath. Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath, contrary to popular opinion. This is not the Sabbath day. Sabbath day is Saturday, always has been, always will be, and the, the, the sabbath day has never been shifted from saturday to sunday sunday is the lord's day and we're commanding romans 10 to not forsake the assembling together so we should come together with god's people we should honor the lord's day in that way but it is not the sabbath so if you come and you you gather together with believers on the lord's day and sunday afternoon you need to you know split some wood because you know winter's coming or you need to do some weeding around your house you're not sinning You're not violating the Sabbath. There is no Sabbath for us to keep today. That is part of the old covenant, which we are not under. All right, next question, last one, and then we'll probably be able to take a couple from the floor. Over in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 and 17 says this. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Now, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. This is a very perplexing passage, and I'm glad someone asked about it. The question is this, what would be sin not leading to death? Doesn't all sin lead to death? And the answer to that is no. Not all sin leads to death in the way that John is talking about here. Now, we do know that Paul says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. So sin, the, the eternal consequences of sin that is not forgiven, not under the blood of Christ, is death. It's eternal death. But I don't think that's what John is referring to here. What I think John is referring to here is the common scenario that we see in the New Testament, of people sinning and being struck dead. Example, Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. You know the story. They saw how Barnabas sold a piece of property at the end of Acts 4, and he gave all the proceeds to the church, to the leadership, to dispense. However, they felt that God wanted them to dispense that and use that money for the Lord's work, and the church was very encouraged by that. And Ananias and Sapphira saw it and said, oh, we can do that too. Now, we don't know what their motives were. It could have been totally pure. They may have said, Man, we want to look good like Barnabas did. And so they sell a piece of property. And the implication of Acts 5 is they got more for it than they thought. So they didn't give all of it. But they implied they gave all of it. So they gave it and implied they gave all of it, which they didn't. And as a result, they were struck dead. So what was their sin? Well, you could, you know describe it a few different ways. Maybe you just say hypocrisy. They were pretending to be more spiritual than they really were. Uh, that is, they wanted to look really spiritual by selling this and, and giving the implication, well, we gave it all to the Lord by giving it to, to the church to use, uh, and they didn't give it all. So they kind of made themselves look more spiritual than they were, really were, which is the term hypocrisy. Now, let's, let's really... Let's be honest here. If God were still smiting Christians for hypocrisy, how many of you would be here tonight? I wouldn't be here tonight. I mean, have I ever wanted to or tried to look more spiritual than I really am? Absolutely. I'd be dead if it was still working that way in Acts chapter 5. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul talks about making sure to examine yourself and and uh, not to partake in an unworthy manner of the Lord's table, etc. And he says, because you're not doing that, some of you are partaking in an unworthy manner, therefore some of you are sick, and some even sleep, which means you're dead. So what that is saying is this, there were those who were partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, and the Lord was chastising them by sickness and even death. Now, again, I ask the question, how many of you have ever partaken of the Lord's table when you shouldn't have partaken of the Lord's table because there was some issue in your life that really wasn't right, but you, you weren't about to pass the plate to someone next to you, and, and they noticed that you didn't take anything, so you went ahead and t- took it. How many, would, how many of us would be dead or sick from 1 Corinthians 11? Frankly, sometimes uh, because I know our congregation—I don't know everyone, but I know our congregation. I know just about people's lives, and I work with a lot of people, and they interact with me, etc. Frankly, there are sometimes during communion I just—I see someone take it, and I wince. I just think, ee, they sh- ah, that's that's dangerous." So, I know it doesn't always happen like it did in First Corinthians 11. People who partake in an unworthy manner aren't struck with sickness or struck with death. So the point is this. What I think John is referring to here is what appears to have been a not an uncommon experience in the first century. Namely, that there would be a sin that would lead to death. There would be a sin that the Lord would directly and immediately intervene in and bring about death. And those are just a couple of examples. Acts 5, 1 Corinthians 11. There are other examples. James 5 talks about at the end of James 5. So this is scattered throughout the New Testament. That in the New Testament, now, I don't have time and I'm not sure I could explain anyway. You know, it begs the question, well, then why doesn't the Lord seem to be doing that today? Why don't we have people dropping dead in church who are, you know, feigning to be more spiritual than they really are, like Ananias and Sapphira. And Why aren't people struck with, not to say that they never are, but struck with sickness or death when they partake of the Lord's table? That's a whole other issue. But suffice it to say, that was going on in the first century. So I think that's what John is referring to. I think what he's saying is this in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death. That is, you see your brother and you know he is sinning. And the Lord has mercifully not struck him or chastened him with death. Then pray for him. Ask, pray for him. And he will give him life for those who commit a sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. This was something evidently that was just known in the first century. Christians knew this. They knew of other believers who sinned and the Lord took their lives. So there is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Now, that's a fascinating phrase. If, if my interpretation of this is right, then what, Paul, or what John is saying here is this. Listen, if someone does sin, a sin leading to death, there's no use praying for them then. You know, there's this idea of praying for people who are dead that's ridiculous you don't pray for people who are dead it's that's it's all decided at that point so I I do not say that you should pray about that if they sin a sin leading to death and the Lord takes them there's no reason to pray for that now you could see how this could very easily lead to the idea oh man we got to try to figure out what's the really bad stuff you know, that might lead to death, and, you know, and then you get into all this stuff like the mortal sin and the venial sin and all of that ridiculousness. So John, to put an end to that, says, listen, verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. I don't want to imply that, you know, there's these categories of sin and levels of sin, and you you got to figure, no, 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 it's, it, God determines that, which, which, which cases where he may intervene and bring about death or, or not. So all unrighteousness is sin. So don't get into that nonsense of, of trying to categorize and classify sins, all unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. There is sin. There are occasions where a person would sin and maybe even do some one of the same things that Ananias and Sapphira did, and God, for his own purposes, which he doesn't explain to us, chooses not to take that person's life. So I think that's what John is saying. I think the key is immersing this in the context of the first century and what was going on there where Christians were being directly, immediately chastised by God unto death for God's own purposes, knowing why he did it more then and not as much now and, and how, you know, when he chose to and when not to. And John is just saying, listen, you see your brother's sin and God in his mercy doesn't chasten him unto death. Pray for him that he'll have life. And if he does sin a sin that leads to death and the Lord chooses for his own purposes to chasten him unto death, take him home, no use praying for him then. His life's over. Now, all unrighteousness is sin, but there is sin not leading to death. So I think that's what John is saying here in its historical context of the first century. All right, those were the four questions that were turned in this morning, and uh, we have about 10 minutes. If you have a pressing question, just uh, stand up so I can see, and then uh, I'll try to repeat it. Mr. Foreman. Sure, sure. No, that's fine, Mr. Foreman. Thanks. No, and I mentioned that this morning that, uh, of course, we just came off our biblical counseling conference. It's always a highlight of the year for us. And I realized I had been scheduled back a couple years ago. Clydehurst Christian Ranch schedules way out in advance. They had asked me to speak for the week, and I committed to it. And then uh, all of a sudden got the dates for the biblical counseling conference this last week. And then when I realized that back a few months ago, I thought, obviously, I can't be in two places at one time. Uh, so my my, bad, my loss that I missed out this week on it. Uh, but no, as far as uh, summer uh, ministry schedule, um, of course, last month uh, we had a group that went to Israel. Uh, and we, we, uh, that, that was a, a big highlight of the summer ministry schedule whenever we do the Israel trip. And next Sunday night, the group is going to be reporting with pictures, etc. So that was sort of the big event for June. The big one for July for me ministry event was Clyde Hurst last Weeks speaking uh, morning and evening, Monday through Friday. And then uh, next month I have uh, another camp, uh, Beartooth Mountain Christian Ranch over in the Beartooths that I've been speaking at the last few years. I'll have that camp. Uh, So those are sort of the three big ministry events for me. And then scattered throughout, uh, I think I have uh, about a half a dozen weddings to officiate, which are always a joy. And I think I'm at about four out of six that I've done. So two left to go. Uh, One this coming weekend, and then one in August. So thanks for the question. Yes, question. Mm, Good question. So in case you didn't hear, when you die, will you go to heaven at the same age that you died at? And I would say this. um, Clearly, based on 1 Corinthians 15, that eventually when we get our new bodies, we're not going to be at the same age. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that our new glorified bodies are going to be like Christ's body. That is, they're going to be uh, perfect, uh, optimum. So, uh, uh, in other words, if you happen to have died at 98 years of age and your eyesight is poor, your hearing all that, obviously you're not going to be that age with all of those limitations. Your body will be perfect, uh, in, incorruptible, immortal, etc. Now, when we die now, it's interesting that not all that much is said in heaven, uh, about heaven. Now, we we often talk about what heaven is like, but what we're doing is we're extrapolating off of Revelation 21 and 22, which is about the future. What the Bible does tell us about heaven is Second Corinthians 5, 8 is absent from the body, present with the Lord. So when we leave our bodies, we go to be with the Lord. Paul said in Philippians 1, I desire to be to to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So we do know, just as Stephen, as he was being stoned, cried out and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We do know that immediately when we die, we don't go to a holding place. We don't go to purgatory. We, don't, we go to be with the Lord. But we're really not told a lot about it, other than we get a little implication from Luke um, uh, 15, Luke 16, which talks about it being paradise. So again, it's a place of bliss, but you know, not a lot of details are given. But the implication is, again, even though we won't have our bodies, and that's another very important thing to, to note, uh, sometimes, you know, I do a lot of funerals. Just as a pastor, you, you end up doing a lot of funerals. And, and a lot of times what uh, I will hear, and I don't correct people in the funeral. This is not a setting to correct people on this. But sometimes people will say, you know, my grandfather died, and I'm so glad. Now he's got his new body up there, and he's dancing around. Well, not really. Um, because we technically don't get our new bodies when we die. We go to be with the Lord, but as as um, Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We don't get our new bodies until First Thessalonians four thirteen to 17 which says that uh, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. So we don't get our new bodies technically until that great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. So in that sense, even the question, well, will we be the same age? Uh, we won't even have bodies immediately to have a comparison of age, but we will be perfected in our spirit, in our uh, yeah, in the spirit, the inner man. So any imperfections we had, whether that was dying as an infant, when you don't have very much mental development, you know, Obviously, you're not going to still be an infant in heaven with that limited knowledge. Or if you are elderly and maybe you're losing your memory and your a lack of clarity, it won't be that. So again, by implication, is we're not going to be the same age we were when we died. We're going to be the optimum age. We'll be uh, like Christ in that sense. Now, whether you want to push it this far, you know, Jesus was between 30 and 33 when he died. I don't know if that's optimum or not, but we're going to be mature adults, not infants. Not past our prime, if you will, but m- mature, perfected saints. So, hope that helped answer the question. Good. Another question. Yeah, right here. Yes. Yes, good question. In case you didn't hear it, um, about the question about the law, it is common for people to try to sort of get around that by saying, well, behold, not the law, but then there's the statutes and the ordinances and all of it, and they try to divide those up. But here's the deal. If you just do a study on those terms, you will find out how they're used interchangeably. You can't differentiate that and say, well, we're not under the law, but we're under the statutes, and we're not under the commandments, but we're under the ordinances. That's what people try to do. Because if you, just one example of it is Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. As you go through Psalm 19, it's clear that the psalmist is is using all of these titles to talk about the same thing, that is the Word of God. So even if you just read Psalm 19, where there are six different titles used there, law of the Lord, statutes, uh, precepts, etc., he's using them as synonyms or interchangeably. So still can't get around that by saying, well, and and as I say, some people try to use that to say, well, but we are under these, but not a, the law is a unit. Galatians um, 3.10, James 2.10, both say it's a unit. You can't divide it up that way. You're either under it or not under it. Good. I think there was a question right back here. Yes. Sure. Sure. So the question was just, uh, just the relationship between justification and sanctification being by grace. Uh, we know ju- the, the cardinal doctrine of the New Testament is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And then we go to sanctification. It's also to be by grace, and yet we have these commands about you know, uh, put off this, and, and uh, you know, study to show yourself approved, etc. So how do you relate that? Is that grace or whatever? Very good question, and I would say this. Um, yes, the New Testament is clear that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is also equally clear that sanctification is by grace. This is the problem with, with Galatians, where Paul is rebuking them because he says, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Do you think you'd be made perfect by the flesh?" You can crank it out on your own. So he's saying in there that not only is justification by grace through faith, sanctification is by grace through faith. But, but here's the key, is that we should not assume that grace, we understand that grace and works are, are an antithesis. They're opposite. You can't be, you know, Paul says that in Romans 4, and he also says it also later in Romans, that it's either grace or works. It can't be both. However, we don't want to draw from that that grace excludes any human responsibility. Because even though we would acknowledge that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, the New Testament is filled with passages that call on people to repent and call on people to believe the gospel and call on people to embrace Jesus Christ. So there's human responsibility that doesn't mean it's works and it doesn't negate it being by grace. In the same way, when it comes to sanctification, that is by grace. You cannot, no matter what you do, beloved, or what I do, we can't grow on our own. We can't make ourselves grow, but it's by grace, but that doesn't mean that there's no human responsibility. So it's still the grace of God that enables us to grow, but the grace of God doesn't cancel out human responsibility. So you and I still have a responsibility to, Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Uh, we still have a human responsibility to put off the old man, put on the new. That Those are not works. That is not us earning our sanctification. It is actually us just obeying, and grace empowers that so that it isn't merely a perfunctory thing, but it is something that enables us to grow. And Paul would even say this um, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God, but his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. So he, he says right in there that grace doesn't mean lack of labor. Grace is not some passivity or passive approach to the Christian life, uh, it is still, if you grow spiritually, it's by grace. It's God's grace that enables it. But it doesn't mean we just sit and wait for it to happen. There are still, there's still the human dimension, if you will, or human responsibility. So great question. All right. We are out of time. Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, thank you for our our time together uh, this Lord's Day, and thank you for those who were able to take in some or all of the biblical counseling conferences. I just heard so many reports about how people were enriched and encouraged and challenged and instructed and stretched, and it's always the case when we're exposed to your word, and, and it is presented to us uh, uh, directly, straightforwardly, and, and in a challenging way. And uh, may we learn from the Apostle Paul's statement there that Your grace toward us should not be in vain. We shouldn't just sort of sit and soak and sour in grace, but rather to recognize our responsibility in response to your marvelous grace for which we are eternally grateful as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.